We're continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians, and we're in the second chapter where Paul is looking back at his ministry in Thessalonica. He has to do this in order to defend himself from those who are criticizing him, and they are basically saying, because he was only there for a few weeks, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy had to escape because of persecution, and there were people who were opposing him, and they were saying, ah, he didn't stay because he didn't care. He didn't care. And what Paul does in these verses, which we've been considering now for a while, is show these believers that he truly cared for them. And we have the most beautiful description in the New Testament of a pastor. And with Andy being an assistant pastor with us now, uh, what a place for us to be feeding on. What is a minister to be like? Well, here we have Paul describing himself as a mother and a father. And not just for those of us who are in the ministry, but for every one of us as believers, we're to emulate the Apostle Paul here because he is imitating Jesus Christ. Now, you have this balance. A father is firm in his love. A mother is gentle. You need both. We need to be gentle men and women. Not one or the other. Our tendency is to go to extremes. And also, at a time when professionalism is creeping in to the churches, we're to be professional. We're to be uh, professional in the sense that we're to serve God in uh, the best and the most transparent way possible. But we should beware of professionalism. Paul wasn't a pastor uh, to make money out of it. And he certainly didn't view ministry as a nine-to-five job. Now, sad to say, uh, that seems to be a common attitude these days that you can't get hold of ministers after five o'clock in the evening even. No, no. Can you imagine as a parent saying to your children, it's after five, I'm not going to listen to you after five? Well, maybe you feel like doing that. But a, a person who is a loving parent is going to be there for their children. And we are in this together, aren't we? Now, we're going to just concentrate on one verse this evening before we go to communion, and we're still thinking of Paul as a father. And in verse 12, he says, let's just read verse 11, and then verse 12 is what we're considering tonight because we looked at verse 11 last time. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthy. Have you heard that tonight? Did you hear it in the reading? Ephesians 4.1 Walk worthy. It seems to be a formula with the Apostle Paul. I could take you to Colossians 
chapter 1, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May this be a motto for us as we begin this new chapter in the life of our church, that not just myself and Andy, not just those who are church workers, not just the elders, not just church council, but that we would all walk worthy. So let's look first at this statement. I think Peter Jeffrey wrote a book with the title Walk Worthy. What does Paul mean here by worthy? Well, he certainly doesn't mean that we deserve salvation. When we will be coming to the Lord's table, I'll be reminding you of what the Book of Common Prayer says. Lord, we are not worthy even to take the crumbs that fall from off the table. This is not worthiness in that sense. Having been saved by grace, we are to walk. And the word walk, as we noted last time, speaks of our lifestyle, the direction this morning which we are going. And our walk should fit our talk. We talk the talk. We're very good at talking the talk in Reformed evangelicalism. But are we walking the walk? Now, what's this word worthy when we're thinking of our lifestyle? Well, it means equal balance, equal weight. I've sometimes spoken about Grieb Goch on Snowden. It's the narrowest way uh, to reach the summits of Snowden. There's one narrower ridge in Britain. It's the Anoch Gach in Glencoe in Scotland. And it's quite a feat to walk on Grieb Goch or the Anoch Gach with balance. Because on one side, you've got a sheer drop, which is certain death. And on the other side, it's not sheer, but if you fell, you'd probably die. So you've got to walk along the knife edge. You've got to keep your balance. You've got to beware. I'm thinking now of us as Christians. We've got to beware of legalism on the one side. It's a danger that we just do things because they've become rules to us. That is deadly. But on the other side, we must be careful of antinomianism. Antinomianism is against law. We must beware of this view that anything goes. That is just as deadly. And so we walk balancing between those two extremes. In other words, Paul was a balanced Christian. Are we balanced? We tend, don't we, to one extreme or the other. We've already seen in terms of his ministry, Paul was firm, but he wasn't brusque. He wasn't a heavy shepherd. He was gentle, but he wasn't flabby. Uh, he wasn't soft. What a lovely balance. You see it in Paul's later letters in terms of the balance between doctrine, the truth that we accept in our minds, and lifestyle, the application of the doctrine. So in chapter 1 of Thessalonians, we had doctrine, one of the most wonderful explanations of Christian conversion. But now he's talking about how that doctrine affects our life. Doctrine, lifestyle. In Paul's later letters, particularly the letter to the Romans, 
you have it in a more developed way, don't you? You have Romans 1 to 11, full of doctrine, the glorious doctrine of justification by faith and the ramifications of that truth. But then Romans 12 begins, therefore, because of the mercies of God, because of everything that's been taught you, you must live differently now. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Not just your souls, but our very members are to be used now in the service of the Lord. Now, do we have this balance between the doctrines of grace? What did Mr. Hyam say? The doctrines of grace and the grace of the doctrines. Alas, we tend to one or the other, don't we? Paul said, writing to the Corinthians, because there was division in the church, he said, it's possible to be so doctrinal to be so filled with head knowledge that you become big-headed. Knowledge puffeth up. And you know what happens to people who have two big heads? They fall, don't they? <laughs> Pride comes before a fall. But then the reverse of that is that we become so big-hearted, and by heart here I mean the feelings, that we're just flabby. And there's no backbone to us. We display the jelly of evangelicalism. But that's no good. We don't want to be jellyfishes. We want to be people with backbone. Like it was said of J.C. Ryle. We want to be men and women of granite. But with the heart of a child. A balanced Christianity. It's not easy. It's not possible in our own strength. It's only God by his spirits that can transform us. And we are to be willing cooperators with the Lord in this. Another understanding of worthy is appropriate, becoming, becoming. Philippians 1, 27, only let your conversation, and by that he doesn't just mean speech, but your lifestyle be as becomes the gospel. We say sometimes, don't we, something isn't becoming. Um, do, you, do you remember Bobby? She, she had a good eye for colours. And she would sometimes catch me at the door and she would tell me, that tie doesn't go with that shirt. It clashes. It's not becoming. Now what Paul is thinking about here is our life not clashing with what we believe or with what we profess. You have it in the Old Testament, don't you? Uh, in the Mosaic uh, laws, you had some laws that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and you have some laws that have general principles for us today. So there is one law that says you can't wear a garment made of mixed material. Are you wearing a polyester cotton shirt? You're in breach of that law if we're still under the Mosaic dispensation. But that law isn't telling us that if we're Christians, we should throw away our polycotton shirts. What it's telling us is that there shouldn't be a clash, that there should be a oneness about our profession and about our life. Let me give you another verse, Titus 2.10 adorning the doctrine, adorning the gospel. 
Uh, think of a uh, house. Some of you have bought houses recently. You've got the foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ. Our house is not on a sand. It's built on the rock of ages. That's the essential. But then you've got to furnish the house. You've got to furnish the house. Now I've got a new flat and everything is grey. Everything is grey. That's fine by me because I'm a man. But you need to adorn the house, don't you? You need to furnish the house. You want to make the house attractive. And this is what Paul is thinking of here. We've got the building. We've got salvation. We're in Christ. But my friends, we need to adorn the gospel. We want to live in such a way that we are good advertisements for Jesus Christ. How did we uh, sing in the second hymn? So let our lips and lives express the holy gospel we profess. So let our works and virtues shine to prove the doctrine all divine. So that people looking at us will say, I know now that there's something different about your kind of Christianity. Because it's not just something that you have in your head. It's not just something that you're trying to push down my throat. There is something beautiful about it. My friends, there is nothing repulsive about true godliness. I think religiosity and morality, there is nothing that attracts in that. But when we have Christ-likeness, there is an attraction to it. Um, I'm reminded of Elizabeth Braun in London. Uh, she was a member in Westminster Chapel and she uh, had a burden for those uh, rough uh, children and she would uh, have a home for them. And sometimes she would take them up to Llanamawdwy where they would meet John and Mary. And sometimes those children would go to foster homes uh, or other homes and they would be deeply unhappy and they would run away and they would run away. And do you know where they would run away to? They would run away to John and Mary in Llanamawdwy because there was something attractive about their Christ-likeness. This shall best proclaim the honours of our Saviour God. So, this walking worthy is a balanced, natural Christianity. No clashes, no clashes. Now, before we come to the Lord's Supper, let me just give you a motivation for this. What's the motivation? Well, look at the verse again. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you. Who calls you? Why are you a Christian this evening? Is it because you have decided to follow Jesus? Well, in one sense, yes. You did make a conscious decision. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that made the decision. It wasn't the Holy Spirit that turned from sin and turned in faith to Jesus Christ, as we had in 1 Thessalonians 1. You were converted. But why were you saved? Why were the Thessalonians saved? Well, listen to Paul. In the first chapter, he puts it so well, knowing, beloved brethren, verse 4, your election by God... And the God who elected us in eternity called us by his spirits in time. Uh, Listen to Peter. This is the motivation. This is wonderful. 
But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar, that's a good word, isn't it? And very apt sometimes. But a special people. Why? That you should show forth, you should adorn the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed, transported. Uh, Think of Star Trek. (laughs) A person being transported from one planet uh, to uh, the Enterprise. That's what it's like for us. One moment we were dead in trespasses and sins. And then the grace of God comes by his Spirit. And we are now in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. What an inducement to live differently. I remember some students, when I was a student, which was a long time ago, uh, he said to us in the Christian Union the advice that he'd been given by his father. He was a Christian, and all his father told him, his father didn't tell him, don't do that, don't do that. All his father told him was, remember who you belong to. Isn't that good? Remember whose you are. Not just who your family is back home and the honor of the name of your family, but remember that you belong to the royal family of heaven. Remember that you have the name Christ attached to you. You're a Christian. Isn't that a motivation? Do you know what the church is? The word church, ecclesia, in the Greek, means called ones. This is what we are here. We're not just another society in Cardiff. You know, sometimes people think that the church is a religious society. So once people discover I'm a minister, they start having religious conversation with me. Not people here now, but people in general. And there's nothing worse than religious conversation. We're not a religious society. May we never become a religious society. We are people who've been called out of the world and called in to the kingdom of God. The church isn't bricks and mortars. The church is comprised of living stones, each one that has been made alive by the Spirit of Christ. And he is the one that is building us, not just this congregation, but other congregations across this city, all over our land, all over the world. He's building us into the house of God. And when the last stone will have been put in place, he will come back and he will reclaim the church for himself. We're part of a new humanity. Isn't that a reason to be living differently? Think of some of the Iranians that uh, have left their country because of the oppression there. And they've come to this country and they're so glad to be free. And they just want one thing, to have a visa to stay in this country. And we were once citizens of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. We were once in the city of destruction, but we are not there anymore. We have now been snatched from that, and we have now been put in the kingdom of light, not in the kingdom of Satan, but in the kingdom of God's dear Son. And we are now heading for our eternal home, 
and I am proud of being a citizen of this kingdom. Aren't you? And I don't want to live like I did before because now I have the Holy Spirit in me and now I have a saviour and I don't want to serve him because I have to. I serve him because I love him because he gave himself for me. I want to show forth the praises of my saviour. What's a motivation? What's a motivation? This is a gospel church. Not just when we have Roger Carswell in a mission. Not just when we have special outreach meetings. But every Sunday morning, the call of the gospel goes out. That's the general call. Everyone hears that call. But there's another call. Many are called, but few are chosen. And you're a Christian because you've heard that special call. I hear thy welcome voice that calls me, Lord. Do you know this hymn? To thee for washing, cleansing in the blood that flowed on Calvary. Think of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead, as dead as a dodo, wasn't he? He'd been dead for three days. And then Jesus Christ comes and he calls him, Lazarus, come forth. If Jesus hadn't said Lazarus, all the dead would have come out of their graves because that is God calling. And we were dead spiritually. And Jesus Christ stood and called. It may have come to us in a sermon. It may have come to us reading the Bible. It may have come to us from another Christian. It may have come to us in a dream. It matters not. What matters is we heard the voice of Jesus. Not physically, but with the ear of faith. We were made alive as we sang in that third hymn. And we are now no longer in the tomb. Yes, we are still living in this world and the trajectory of this world is towards death and destruction. This world is going to be no more one day. This world is going to be destroyed. We are now living in the kingdom of lights. And we are heading, heading to our eternal home. Uh, the word for calling here isn't just past. Let me read again the verse that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's presence. So the God who called you on that happy day that fixed your choice on Jesus Christ as your savior and your God is continuing to call. How do you explain that? I don't know. I don't know. Let Peter help us. As he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of lifestyle. For it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So I didn't just stop at my conversion. Uh, at my conversion, I changed directions, didn't I? That's what repentance means. I was heading away from God, and now I'm going toward God, toward Christ, toward righteousness, toward heaven. And I didn't stop when I was converted. I'm carrying on. I may find myself sometimes slipping. I may find myself sometimes going backwards. That's what backsliding is. But 
my trajectory now is in a new direction. And every day we have to show forth, don't we? The calling of our Savior. Every day we have to prove our calling. Don't you face decisions in life when you go to university or when you start a job or when you move to a new area? These are uh, crossroads where we can take one turn which takes us away from God and Christ or we can take another turn which takes us closer. I, I remember a good friend when I was in university. It's only a small thing, but I found this very helpful. Uh, we had to share rooms. When I was a student, we had to share rooms. You don't have to do that now, do you? We had to share rooms. And my friend was sharing with a non-Christian. And by non-Christian, I mean a person who would go out and get drunk every evening. And what my friend did was simply have his books in the bookshelf. And amongst his academic books were his Christian books and his Bible. He wasn't embarrassed that he was a Christian. It's only a small thing, isn't it? But it can mean a lot just to take that step. Are we showing forth in our lifestyle the praises of him who has called us? Are you embarrassed to be a Christian? Or are you able to say, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend his cause? Lazarus again when he was made alive, what did he have on? He had his grave clothes still on. They must have smelt. They weren't becoming. And we've still got our grave clothes, haven't we, often? And what Paul is saying to us here is, get rid of those grave clothes. That's why I read from Ephesians 4. I could have read from Romans chapter 13, or I could have read from Colossians 3. They're all saying the same. Let me read Colossians 3. Put off, take off the grave clothes, all those things that belong to the old life, the old man. You haven't got an old man anymore, right? The old man is dead, crucified. He was crucified with Christ. You've got the old nature, and the old nature wars against the new nature. The flesh wars against the spirit, but the old man is dead. And get rid of what belonged to the old man. And if you want to know what these things are, we're told. We're told in Ephesians, Romans, Colossians. Let me just read. These are the things we're to take off. These are the grave clothes. Anger, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Do not lie. Put on. So we take those off. That, that's what being worldly is. It's having the mindset of the world, having that attitude which leads to a lifestyle. Well, as Christians, we were like that, but we are no longer. We take those things off. And what do we put on? We put on the new man in Christ. We put on Christ-likeness. And what lovely things they are. What are they? I'm reading from the shorter list in Colossians 3. Tender mercies. Wow, what a powerful witness that is. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you. That's revolutionary, my friends. 
a community that puts those things into practice is going in a completely direction, completely new direction. May we emulate more and more of those things. You know, it really doesn't matter what we wear as Christians. As long as we don't wear something that's inappropriate, it really doesn't matter. The things that the Bible talks about are be clothed with humility. Array yourself in good works. If we were to give as much energy and time to those kind of clothes, I think churches will be in a better state. Uh, well, I've got to come to a conclusion here. Augustine of Hippo, the greatest theologian ever, possibly. Do you know his conversion? He was in Milan. He knew the gospel for years. He knew the gospel. He was a young man and he had hormones. And he wanted to put off being converted because he did not want to turn his back on his lusts. He prayed, didn't he? Give me temperance. But not yet, Lord. Not yet. And then one day he was in the garden and he heard children singing, Tolelege, Latin, take up and read. And there were scriptures by him. And he opened the scriptures. And lo and behold, they opened in the book of Romans, the end of chapter 13. And he didn't just hear the word. Christ was calling him, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk appropriately as is becoming, as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Isn't that beautiful? Christ-likeness and Augustine's life wasn't the same again. And encouragingly, Augustine lived at a crossroads moment in history. Augustine lived at a time when the Roman emperor was crumbling and when the Goths and the Vandals were coming at the door and yet he shone for Christ. May we in our uncertain times shine in the same way. Let me give you another example. Robert Bennett will be able to tell you more about this gentleman because he would have known him from Sandfields. People under Dr. Lloyd-Jones is preaching in Sandfields. The beginning of the 20th century were converted real ruffians. And there was one man, I can't remember his name, before he was saved, he had a moustache. And he was proud of his moustache. He was a fighter. And part of his image as a fighter was this moustache. Right, it was quite a moustache, apparently. Uh, you've seen people with, like, double moustaches. Well, I think he probably had something like that. And then he was saved. He was saved. And one day he came to church and he'd shaved off his moustache. And Dr. Martin asked him, what happened to you? Dr. Martin was worried, you see, that some people had told him off for his moustache, but nothing of the kind had happened. All this man said was... I don't belong to my own old lifestyle. I belong to Christ now. And referring to his moustache, he said, them things don't belong to me anymore. Them things. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with having a moustache. I can't see anybody with a moustache at the moment, but there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with a moustache. What that man realised was them things belonged to his old life. And he got rid of them. They were the grave clothes. What are the them things for you and for me? What are the them things that hinder our walk with Christ, that get in the way, that drag us down? They may not even be things that are sinful in and of themselves, but the effect that they have on us is such. So this is not legalism. This is not legalism. I'm not telling you what you should or shouldn't do. I'm saying them things. The Spirit needs to search our hearts. If anything is hindering, let us get rid of it. We are in this for the long haul. This is not a sprint. This is not even a marathon. It's an ultramarathon, unlike any ultramarathon in the world. And we have a Jesus who has gone before us. And we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that have also ran ahead of us. And so many of them have arrived in glory now. My friends, we are uh, being prepared for glory. This is what this life is all about. It's a prep school. We are heirs of inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for us. We are already possessors of it, but we haven't come into the enjoyment of it yet. That will happen when we die. That's why Joan and others have been promoted. We're running. Let me close with, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside them things, every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Praise God. It's not about you or me. It's about God's work in us. Walk worthy of your calling because it is so.